Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and you're listening to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast, a place for practical advice for women looking to balance their hormones, ditch dieting, and discover mindset shifts that will keep you motivated and empowered on your healthy eating journey. Are you ready to get started? One of the most common complaints that I get from women who are working with me is that they're bloated. They feel puffy, they feel distended, they're gassy. Some of them struggle with constipation, some of them have diarrhea, but there's something going on in their body that's making them feel bloated and uncomfortable. So my guest today is going to talk about bloating. We're also going to talk about IBS and something called SIBO. And her name is Rachel Everett. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist with a virtual private practice focusing on helping women take back their life from bloat and digestive problems caused by IBS and SIBO. Rachel herself struggled with digestive issues when she was growing up, and she dedicated her career to finding answers. While studying to be a dietitian, Rachel wasn't content with only managing her symptoms. She wanted to know why they were happening in the first place. After digging deeper into integrative nutrition, Rachel discovered that her IBS was caused by something called SIBO. Once she was able to treat the root cause of her symptoms, she was able to liberalize her diet and break free from the constant bloat and digestive troubles that robbed her of high self-esteem and a normal social life. I think we can all relate to this. If you've ever suffered from digestive problems, you know that they can be pretty debilitating and have an impact that's negative not only on your body, but on your mindset as well. So Rachel soon realized that SIBO is very common with IBS sufferers, and it quickly became her passion to help other women ditch the bloat and thrive with confidence and experience freedom from restrictive diets. So I am all for Rachel's mission, and that's why I invited her today on the show so we can talk about bloating and she can give us some great tips around what to do if this is something that you're currently experiencing. So let's get into my chat with Rachel Everett. Hey, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm excited to have you. Hi, Daphna. Yeah, I'm super excited. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So we talked a little bit before and we decided that we're going to talk about IBS and specifically about something called SIBO, which you specialize in. But before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you into specializing in this niche? Yeah, of course. So uh, yeah, first and foremost, um, my mission is to educate women on how to manage IBS symptoms and ultimately, you know, repair their digestive tract using integrative and non-pharmaceutical solutions. So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. But as for me, um, I'm a registered dietitian. I practice uh, integrative and functional nutrition. Um, And I've been in practice for, man, almost almost seven years now. So time flies. Um, but yeah, my, my background, you know, is pretty standard for the most part, uh, actually is pre-med in undergrad and I planned to go to medical school, um, until I took a class called nutritional treatment of disease. And honestly, that rocked my world. Um, I'd always been passionate about nutrition, but this kind of sort of opened the door or opened my eyes to, you know, a potential career in nutrition. And so I took a hard left turn and decided to get my master's in nutrition instead of pursue medical school, um, which I'm so glad I did. Uh, But yeah, during the first part of my career, I actually didn't um, start in the hospital setting like most uh, clinical dietitians. Um, I had an amazing opportunity to be a dietitian for a major university here in Dallas. And you know, I'd say that during that time is when I really started digging deeper into integrative nutrition, um, taking you know specialized courses in that, um, and specifically to gut health. 
so I was trying to like figure out my own gut issues at the time. Um, and, and so, you know, I was looking for answers. I had been diagnosed with IBS as a kid. I'd always, you know, struggled with bloating and constipation and, you know, just some of these really unsexy <laughs> symptoms. Um, and I just really wasn't uh, satisfied with, you know, the answers that I had been given so far. Um, and so I dug deeper. I wanted to find, you know, the root cause of what was really going on inside of me. And, um, and working with, you know, university students, uh, you know, I realized that other women were suffering from the same things. You know, I heard all the time from students coming to my office and doing counseling, um, you know, that they were bloated. And, and that was the biggest thing is bloating. You know, no one, no one enjoys feeling six months pregnant and experiencing that. Um, which is kind of funny because in grad school, you know, we didn't really talk about bloating. Um, the low FODMAP diet was just sort of coming on the scene and gaining popularity. Uh, but that was the really, you know, it was really the only thing we had up to that point uh, to address it. So, you know, I felt like there was a reason <laughs> that people were getting bloated, myself included. Um, and I knew that we weren't designed to be bloated all the time, you know, have low energy, struggle with just having a normal bowel movement, you know, each day. Um, so, yeah, you know, kind of long story short, I did a lot of self-education, digging deeper into the research. And um, I actually came across uh, these studies that were cropping up um, suggesting that IBS was in the most part caused by something called SIBO, you know, which we'll get into later, but that stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Um, so I think the statistics like up to 80% of IBS is caused by SIBO. Um, so I ended up getting tested for it, working with an integrated practitioner. And once I got rid of SIBO, Daphna, my life changed. <laughs> For the first time, you know, I didn't have to wake up worrying if I was going to have bowel movement that day. I didn't have to worry about, you know, if I ate something, was I going to get bloated? So, you know, that really catapulted me into uh, my private practice where, you know, I really wanted to help women who like me, you know, maybe went to a doctor and they heard that, you know, there essentially was no hope. <laughs> There's no hope for them. And I know that your listeners can relate with PCOS. You know, you go to the doctor and, you know, the doctors say for PCOS, um, you know, well, eat less and exercise more. <laughs> right. And, you know, kind of the same thing with IBS. Doctors, uh, you know, tend to just say, you know, well, you're going to have to deal with this forever. And by the way, here's some Miralax. Yes. And I hear that so often. So, uh, yeah. So my, my whole role was to go into that. I've had IBS and I still struggle with it. It's definitely not something that just, um, I think goes away unless you actively manage it. Um, yeah. but you know, one of the most common things that I've heard, cause I've been to many gastroenterologists is, well, you have IBS. We don't know why. Right. So nobody knows what causes IBS. It's one of those mystery symptoms or, or, um, disorders but that's not really true, right? So we, it's hard to tell sometimes what causes it. But like you said, a huge percentage of it is caused by SIBO, right? Yeah, I mean, and a lot of this research, you know, SIBO has been around for a while. Um, so it's not like this new, you know, quote, disease that, you know, just came out of the blue. Um, it's definitely been around for a long time, but I know when I was in grad school, you know, I went to uh, grad school at a, you know, medical center here in Dallas. And, um, and so they were, you know, supposedly on top of the newest information you would think, and yeah. you would think, right. But, um, well, you know, a lot of research was just now coming out about how SIBO can be caused by so many different things. So like when I was in grad school, for example, we only learned that you could get SIBO um, from having your gut resected. So having some kind of surgery where you're taking some part of your small intestine out or your large intestine. And that was really the only thing, you know, we learned about it. And it was funny because when we were in class learning about SIBO, um, I remember thinking, wow, that sounds like me. That sounds like what I have. But then, you know, when our professors went into it, like, well, this is the only way you can get it. I'm like, well, I haven't had, you know, my intestines my messed yeah. with, so <laughs> it can't possibly be me. But really in the last like five years, I'd say 
tons of research have come out to show you can get SIBO. One of the biggest reasons is food poisoning. Really? So, yeah. And I mean, imagine like so many people have gotten food poisoning in your life. Like I know I have, man, I've had several instances where sushi didn't, <laughs> didn't go the right way. <laughs> so, you know, and it, that's even traveling, you know, nowadays so many people are traveling, you know, going to new countries and even, you know, getting sick overseas uh, that can lead to SIBO. And so, yeah, I'd say that, you know, the underlying cause of IBS, we're learning more and more about it. And we can say without, you know, um, shadow of a doubt that all IBS is caused by some dysbiosis, some unbalance of gut bacteria. Okay. All right. So we're going to get into SIBO more in depth and you'll definitely yes. tell us what it is, how to treat it and all of that good stuff. But let's take a step back and let's talk about bloating because it seems like everybody is bloated, <laughs> right? Everyone is bloated. And I think people sometimes use it a little loosely. So tell us a little bit about your definition of bloating. What would you consider to be true, yeah. legit bloat? Yeah, Daphne, that's a great question. And it's tricky because you would think that, you know, considering that, you know, people with IBS, you know, over 90% of people with IBS um, complain of bloating as their most problematic symptom. You think that we'd have some like good criteria for like evaluating it, say like, hey, you have to be distended like two centimeters or, you know, something as far as a measurement, but unfortunately we don't. And so, you know, the Rome criteria, which, you know, is this process for creating a diagnosis, um, for functional bloating, you know, they say that you either have to have a feeling of bloat, so it can just be a feeling or visible distension of your stomach for, you know, at least three days per month. Um, and symptoms have to be present for at least three months. Um, you know, so there might be a difference between, hey, you know, you had a big meal and you're, you know, feeling overly full, but there is a difference between, you know, that over full feeling where it's in your stomach versus the sense of gassiness. Um, I'd say that's probably the biggest distinguisher, uh, between just overeating. Um, and you know, there's no, there's no right or wrong way to feel bloated. (laughs) Right. So it's really, you know, your own, um, discretion, whether you feel like a sense of gassiness or distension, but you don't even have to have distension for bloating to to occur. Um, so it's kind of more of a sensory phenomenon, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately I can't give a great definition since it really is your own personal feeling of, wow, I feel bloated or like, I know I overate, but I'd say if you're distended, if you're puffy, if you're uncomfortable, you know, that sounds like bloat to me. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think what you said is really important. It can happen regardless of when you ate. So someone could wake up and feel gassy or bloated without having had anything to eat, right? Or it can happen at any time of the day. So I think that's really important to for my listeners to know that if you're feeling gassy and it, it's hard to tell why, that's probably you know something that's going on with your gut, regardless of what you ate, right? A hundred percent. And, you know, but it's also, it also is tied to what you eat too. I have a lot of, um, you know, I've had clients before where, you know, they're eating a normal amount of food. They're not overeating for someone of their size and they get bloated. And so that would definitely be distinguished between, well, you know, I didn't overeat for, you know, all my meals today. Like I ate what a normal amount would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really common with, you know, SIBO, and we'll go into this later is, you know, you might wake up, you might wake up with a flat stomach. And then throughout the day with each meal that goes by this bloat builds where at the end of the day, it's like, you feel six months pregnant, you're uncomfortable. You might have some pain as well. Like I know my personal story, like I'd be on the couch curled up in a ball because it hurt to even like stand. So, um, you know, it's a little different for everybody. You know, some people might wake up bloated, but the big thing is, is, you know, if you're, if there's nothing that is causing, you know, that bloat to go down, let's say you're bloated all the time and nothing makes it better. Um, that would be something a little bit more maybe serious where you'd go to a doctor to discuss. Okay. Uh, Yeah. 
All right. So since we're in the kind of let's define what things are (laughs) part of this, um, let's talk about constipation because that's another thing where I've had clients tell me I'm I'm so constipated and then I find out they only went once a day as opposed to twice a day and they consider that to be constipated. I don't consider that to be constipated. So for constipation, is there a real definition or is there kind of um, guidelines that you look for? Yeah. So... And again, like, you know, everyone's body is a little bit different as far as like their transit. So how fast it takes from food to go from, you know, your mouth to evacuating your body. Um, And so, you know, it really is different for each person. Some, someone might say, you know, well, I go once a day and that's constipation. I wouldn't necessarily say that my term of constipation is you're going, you're not going, um, you know, maybe you have more than two days where you don't go to the restroom. Like you're going, um, you know, fewer than three times a week. I would say that that's constipation, but you know, they say normal is between one time a day to three times a day. Uh, again, you know, that there's a lot of different factors that come into play there with, um, you know, hormones and stress and, you know, just everything going on that, uh, I wouldn't want to diagnose someone as being constipated if they just went once a day. Okay. Yeah. So would you say that if someone's constipated, if they're bloated, is it safe to assume that they do have IBS? Which is irritable bowel syndrome, yeah. I should say. Yeah. <laughs> irritable bowel syndrome. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, again, I wouldn't want to assume anything. <laughs> you know, I have to say that out front. You know, I do always recommend going and talking to your doctor about your symptoms. And, you know, it's unlikely that it's something more serious. I think the statistic is that, you know, well, 10% people worldwide have IBS. And I think it's 20% of Americans have IBS. And then when you get to the PCOS population, about 45% of you know, women with PCOS also have IBS. So, you know, there's a good chance, it's a good chunk of people. Um, there's a good chance that it is IBS and it's not something more serious, but Um, You know, you always want to go and get that checked out. Make sure that it's not something, um, you know, like celiac or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or something like that. But, um, you know, I'd say some good uh, symptoms to just look out for, for, you know, as if it was something serious, um, you might have, you know, blood in your stool, difficulty breathing, you know, recurrent vomiting, unintentional weight loss, you know, sudden onset of constipation that's not related to your change in diet. And um, so some of those things that might be a little bit more concerning, um, would point you to, okay, well maybe it's, you know, something I really do need to go talk to a doctor about, but yeah, if you're if you're constipated um, and bloated, then those are two symptoms of IBS, but those aren't the only okay. the only criteria. And I can I can definitely go into you know what the criteria is to be diagnosed with IBS. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so you know for IBS, uh, the Rome criteria for that is that you know you would have changes in gut motility. Um, you know whether that's diarrhea or constipation. I mean these symptoms would be chronic. So you know you would have to have symptoms that occur you know at least three days each month for three months or longer. So you know if you just have a bout of constipation, you know once in a blue moon or some diarrhea after you you know went out drinking too much. <laughs> that's that's not going to be considered IBS. But, you know, within the diagnosis of IBS, you have IBS constipation, IBS diarrhea, or you can have IBS mixed. So, um, you know, it's not just the constipation and the bloating, but also how long and how frequent it's been occurring. Okay. And I know that for a lot of my clients, things change during the month. So for my female clients, which are, uh, you know, women are more likely to suffer from IBS. And um, throughout the month with hormonal changes, there's definitely a connection with what's going on in the gut. So can you talk a little bit about how hormones and the gut kind of um, intermix with each other? Absolutely. So definitely, that's why I love integrative uh, nutrition or just integrative approach to health because, 
it really just shows you how every part of our body is connected, you know, and that's, you know, that's really why things can get so confusing when you've got all these symptoms because, you know, everything's affecting, you know, each other. So you've got your gut affecting your hormones and you've got mental health affecting your gut and all all these different things. But um, yeah, you know, I hear all the time and I'm sure you do too, like you mentioned that, you know, as women get close to their period, um, their GI symptoms worsen. So whether that's constipation or diarrhea, um, you know, it's very tied to hormones. Um, and, and as far as the gut goes, you know, I think one of the biggest things is, uh, you know, how the gut impacts hormones is inflammation. So whether you've got IBS, um, whether you have SIBO or just dysbiosis, so microbial, um, or microbiome imbalance, um, inflammation in general, any kind of inflammation is going to, you know, raise your cortisol levels. It's going to raise estrogen. Um, and it's going to raise also an enzyme, you know, called five alpha reductase. So mm-hmm. fancy word, uh, but basically that can increase acne, hair growth, some of these, you know, PCOS symptoms. Um, but kind of going back to our cycle and uh, gut symptoms. So estrogen, you know, again, you know more about this than I do, but from my, you know, basic understanding of hormones, uh, you know, estrogen levels as they rise at the beginning of our cycle, um, you know, the peak is right before ovulation, right? And so, well, estrogen, it causes water retention. Um, so you might feel like puffy during that time, but you know, that's not necessarily that bloated gassy feeling, um, that you'd get from, you know, digestive symptoms. Uh, and then, you know, after ovulation, your progesterone rises and, uh, progesterone actually slows things down in our digestive tract. So, you know, you might experience some exacerbation of your IBS symptoms during that time as well. But, you know, I was reading like an interesting study um, that was linking estrogen to the reason why uh, more women suffer from IBS. Um, the linking that, you know, there's a thought that estrogen and our ovarian hormones have a impact on our muscle contraction. So, you know, even our intestines, those are muscles, um, intestinal transit. So how fast things move through our intestines, um, our sensitivity to pain, um, and immune function as well. So there's definitely a tie there. It's not, you know, so if you're experiencing, uh, you know, worsened constipation or worsened diarrhea, during time, different times in your cycle. Um, that's definitely something that, uh, you know, is caused by hormones and there's an interrelationship there, but I don't, I wouldn't say that if you notice, you know, that one time a month you're having symptoms crop up, that wouldn't necessarily be IBS. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but there's definitely a role that they play together. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, SIBO and IBS. Tell us a little bit about how do they relate to each other? So you said that the most common cause of IBS is SIBO in a lot of cases. And what is SIBO specifically? Yeah. Uh, So SIBO, you know, stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And how I like to explain it um, to women is, you know, normally we have all this great, wonderful bacteria in our large intestine. And that's what we call your microbiome. You know, that's where we usually, you know, get recommendation, dietary recommendation to have probiotics, you know, drink kombucha, eat fermented food, eat a lot of fiber. All of that is really to benefit that microbiome in our large intestine. Well, there's certain things that can happen like food poisoning um, and, you know, a host of other issues. Uh, But it essentially causes bacteria that normally are in your large intestine to move into your small intestine and take up residence there. Um, and this is a problem because bacteria wasn't meant to live in our small intestine. You know, our small intestine is supposed to be pretty relatively sterile. That's where we're, you know, absorbing nutrients from our food. That's a huge part, um, you know, of our digestion and just breaking down foods that we can absorb it. Um, but if you've got bacteria living there, you know, 
Now they're taking advantage of your food. So instead of you getting those nutrients, they're getting those nutrients. These bacteria that aren't supposed to be there are eating that. And I kind of make a joke about it and say, you know, they're eating the food and they're farting in your small intestine. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and that gas that they give off, um, you know, there's, there's one of three gases or you could have a combination, but um, there's SIBO that's constipation predominant. And usually the constipation predominant SIBO is caused by methane gas. So you have these methanogens, which are archaea living in your small intestine that are eating your food and giving off methane gas. That's going to slow transit in your intestine. That's going to cause the constipation. Um, there's a, other bacteria that are hydrogen producers. And so if you have more hydrogen producers living in your small intestine, that's going to cause diarrhea. And then there's another one that we can't test for right now, but um, it's called hydrogen sulfide gas. And that gas is a little bit different. You would notice that, you know, if you have a lot of really smelly farts, you know, like kind of rotten egg smell, um, maybe you had sensitivity to light. So there's like some different symptoms that go along with hydrogen sulfide. But um, right now we, we can test for the methane gas and the hydrogen gas. Um, and, and that would, you know, with the test, you'd be able to evaluate, okay, are these bacteria living in your small intestine or are they in your large intestine where they're supposed to be? And, and we're talking about good bacteria, like not necessarily pathogens. It's the good bacteria that's kind of relocating to the small intestine where they're not supposed to be and they're causing problems. And this is probably why you wouldn't want to support them with probiotics and things like that because they would just continue to grow in the wrong place, right? Absolutely. That was a perfect summary of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of going off of what you said, a lot of the nutrition advice is geared towards our large intestine, you know, eat more fiber, take probiotics. Well, if you've got bacteria living in the wrong place, um, you know, our small intestine wasn't made for that. It wasn't made for gas. And so, you know, if you're giving yourself probiotics and you feel worse, that's a good sign that you might have some bacteria living in the wrong spot. Or if you, you know, drink kombucha or eat fermented foods and that makes you feel worse. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> you're, you're feeding this bacteria in your small intestine and it's giving off gas, which is causing that pain. It's causing that bloating feeling. It's causing those changes in your bowel movements. Uh, so yeah, you're exactly right. And that test is what kind of test? How would you, how would someone go about finding out? Yeah. Uh, so it's a breath test and, you know, I offer this to clients, um, but essentially it's a really simple test. It's, um, you know, done at home. So you don't have to go into a doctor's office and you essentially blow into this tube, this bag and a tube kind of little uh, setup. And you blow into it every 20 minutes for about three hours. And you do this after you drink a, uh, it could be either a lactulose solution or a glucose solution. But essentially you take like a, a baseline, you blow into this tube and you get kind of like a baseline uh, gas levels. And then you drink the solution. And the idea is that the solution is getting into your small intestine. Um, and as you blow out, you'll either you'll blow out, you know, gases, whether that's hydrogen or methane, if there's bacteria there, because our body don't, doesn't produce those gases. So every 20 minutes you're getting, okay, how much methane, how much hydrogen is, you know, coming out of your breath. And that is able to diagnose SIBO. Okay. So it's pretty easy to do. Anybody could do that at home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it's, it's pretty simple. <laughs> So say you work with someone, you have them take the test and it comes back that they have a lot of methane gas. They are likely suffering from SIBO. Hmm. What do you do next? How do we make those bacteria get out of the small intestine and back where they belong? Uh, what kind of things would you start working on first? Sure. So, you know, and that's where I really like to kind of harp on, um, you know, diet is not unfortunately a cure in this situation. And so a lot of people want to just go on a low FODMAP diet and think that that's going to, you know, get rid of their symptoms. 
Yeah, that's going to manage your symptoms, but that's not going to get rid of the root cause, which is bacteria that's living in the wrong spot. So, um, you know, first and foremost, yes, I will use, uh, you know, diet and lifestyle approaches to manage symptoms because you want to get symptom relief as soon as possible. So that looks like, you know, low FODMAP diet that might look like, you know, different things to reduce stress, your behaviors around how you're eating, um, those kind of things first. But the biggest part is you're doing something to kill off that bacteria. So whether you're taking antibiotics um, through, you know, a doctor or physician, uh, that would typically be, you know, if it's methane, um, uh, pro, uh, antibiotic called rifaximin and possibly um, neomycin. Or if it's just hydrogen dominant, it's just rifaximin. Um, and then, or, so that's kind of the antibiotic approach, or you could do the herbal antimicrobial approach, which is the one that I do with clients. Um, I prefer that because it's got more beneficial effects. You know, with antibiotics, you're also impacting your good bacteria with antimicrobial. Antibiotics. Um, Large intestine, you mean? Yeah, and your large intestine. So you're having some like negative side effects. But with the herbals, you're killing the bacteria in your small intestine, but you're also creating a benefit for the bacteria in your large intestine. So it's kind of like a win win there. Um, What kind of herb, like what's in the herbal tincture or? So it it depends on, you know, what uh, someone's results are. So if they're methane dominant, that is probably going to be something like um, allicin, which is an extract from garlic. And you're going to be taking that alongside of berberine, which is a component of some herbs like golden seal and organ grape. Um, and then, uh, you know, you might be taking another, um, you know, supplement that's uh, emulsified oregano. So, yeah, so it's kind of a, a mix of, you know, two or three, also depending on how severe it is. You know, I have clients that come back and their gas levels are off the charts. And so it's going to take a little bit more, you know, herbals, probably three instead of two. And it's going to take more time to get rid of it as well. So a typical treatment course is two to three months. Okay. And do you retest or do you just see that the symptoms are gone? Yeah. So it's really important to retest just because, you know, a lot of times at the end, you know, you might be feeling better, but if you don't completely kill off that bacteria, it's going to continue to just regrow. Um, And so you want to retest to have that, you know, peace of mind knowing you got rid of it because a lot of times too, you know, you might get rid of it and then you might have symptoms pop up where, you know, a couple weeks later you, you know, eat something, drink something, and you get bloated. And that fear might, you know, show up of, oh, shoot, you know, I, I got SIBO. I still have SIBO. I didn't get rid of it. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's reasons for, you know, why you might still have symptoms um, following up, you know, clearing SIBO. But yeah, it's, it's a good idea to retest to know that you've gotten rid of it, that you don't need a second round because uh, sometimes people need multiple rounds, unfortunately. Okay. All right. So we killed the bacteria. Say it worked the first time around. We retested. Mm-hmm. Things look normal. Tell us a little bit more about the FODMAP diet because I know I did a survey on my stories a few weeks ago. A lot of people didn't know what it is. So a lot of people didn't know about it. And I'm sure you also have this experience where people may have heard of it or not sure. So what is the low FODMAP diet, which is the main diet you use to manage IBS symptoms, right? And bloat. Sure. Yeah. So, so what the low FODMAP diet is, is, you know, FODMAP stands for an acronym. Um, that's fermentable, oligo, dye, saccharides, you know, and polyols. So it's this, it's this mouthful um, that really comes down to, you know, these fermentable carbohydrates. So that means that there's these type of carbohydrates in foods. And, you know, what makes the FODMAP diet really confusing is it's seemingly random foods. Um, but so you've got these, these carbohydrates that are fermentable, meaning that they're going into your small intestine and they're feeding bacteria. So these are major bacteria um, feeding foods. And when they feed bacteria in the wrong place, like your small intestine, um, those bacteria eat it, ferment it, and out comes bloating and constipation, diarrhea, you name it. So 
kind of, you know, to break it down a little further, uh, FODMAPs are broken down into, you know, your fructose category. So you would be eliminating, you know, fruits maybe that are higher in fructose, um, honey, high fructose, corn syrup, um, and then lactose is another uh, FODMAP food um, or FODMAP carbohydrate. And that would be, you know, your dairy. Then you've got your fructans. That would be wheat, you know, garlic, onion, um, you know, different things in there. And your galactans, which is your beans. A lot of people notice they have issues with beans. Um, and then polyols. So that's going to be some stone fruits like your avocado, your cherries, your apricots, um, your sugar alcohols. So it, it really is kind of a, a long list of foods um, when you go into it um, that you want to eliminate for about four to six weeks. So, so it, yeah, it does sound like a big list, but yeah. there are um, lower and higher FODMAP foods within each category. So it's not, you don't have to eliminate all fruit or you don't have to eliminate all, um, I guess, beans. Are there beans that are more well tolerated than others or beans are pretty hard? Yeah. Beans are, you know, pretty hard. You can do things like, you know, choosing canned beans and doing lower portions. So, you know, but sometimes it's kind of funny to be like, well, I can have two tablespoons of beans, you know, (laughs) who's going to go through, you know, the effort of making the beans to eat a small amount. But, but that's why, you know, it is important to work with a dietitian or work with someone who's really familiar with the low FODMAP diet so that you're not just cutting out a bunch of foods that are unnecessary, you know, because you, you still want to get a very balanced diet. Like you said, there's fruits that aren't high fructose. You know, you can still have certain berries like strawberries and blueberries and raspberries um, and, you know, clementines. There's still types of cheeses and lactose-free milk that you can have. So, so within, each category, there's definitely a good variety to, you know, still, um, you know, have a balanced diet. But again, these are a lot of healthy foods that you're cutting out, which is why we only want you to do it for, you know, four to six weeks until you're seeing a big reduction in your symptoms. And then at that point, we do a reintroduction phase where it's a strategic reintroduction of each FODMAP um, to see what your specific intolerances are. Because, you know, you might be fine with lactose. That might not be a problem for you, but you can't deal with galactans. Like you can't, um, you know, eat lentils or else you feel bloated. So it's really um, about figuring out your unique intolerances because it's different for everybody. So it starts off the most strict for about a month or six weeks, but then you start introducing things back and you liberalize the diet a little bit. um, And that makes it easier to really pinpoint the actual foods that are problematic for each person, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, this all kind of fits within the big picture. When I'm working with someone who has SIBO, um, this is really to get symptoms under control as soon as possible. Because since I told you, you know, the treatment takes two to three months. Well, I don't want you to be bloated for two to three months. You know, I want you to start seeing symptom relief as soon as possible. And so that's where we use um, the low FODMAP diet to kind of manage those symptoms. First, it is most strict. Then we liberalize it to what you tolerate. And then you stay on that modified low FODMAP diet for, you know, possibly six months. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, then you start adding things back in uh, to see, okay, you know, I've gotten rid of SIBO. I've let my digestive system heal. Like inflammation has come down and now I'm going to, you know, experiment with adding more beans or adding more garlic, something, you know, some things that maybe you didn't tolerate before. Yeah. And I saw there's, there are nuances to this because I saw on your page that unripe bananas <laughs> can be tolerated, but then ripe bananas are higher in fructose, I guess, where the sugars are more mm-hmm. available because they're more ripe. Um, yeah. So you definitely want to work with someone who knows about this enough to guide you so that you don't eliminate things for no reason, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it is very... 
overwhelming. I have, you know, a woman come to me all the time. Like, yeah, I looked at the low FODMAP diet and it just seemed like a long list of foods that I couldn't have. And I don't know where to start. And so I gave up. And, and so I'd encourage, you know, if your listeners are experiencing bloating, if they're having some of these IBS symptoms, you know, a good place to start is just removing garlic and onion. So those are the biggest triggers, you know, that, you know, regardless of, you know, your personal intolerances, that's usually usually a big one for everybody. Um, and that's, and because of that, that's always the last one that I'll bring in for someone that, you know, is going through the IBS SIBO protocol. It's always the last thing to bring in. So even just starting there, um, and then, you know, you can build on that slowly. So once you've kind of gotten used to, you know, cooking without garlic and onion, looking at your seasonings that have, you know, blends, always have garlic and onion in them. So that's a good place to start. I mean, the next thing would be maybe taking out some cruciferous vegetables. So like broccoli, um, especially the stems, the florets are more tolerated, but I mean, personally, when I was going through all my symptoms, IBS and SIBO, like I couldn't even do the florets. So, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, uh, those are also big, um, you know, fermentable foods that can cause symptoms in most people. Mm -hmm. Does it become challenging when someone's vegetarian because the diet is more focused on plants and carbs? Yeah, you know, that's, it is a challenge. It's not impossible because you can still have firm tofu and you can still have tempeh um, and edamame. Those are, you know, still foods that are allowed and and you can get protein sources from there. Um, And, you know, and if you're vegetarian, eggs and uh, dairy-free, you know, yogurts and milks and those sort of things, you can still get enough protein. Um, But it definitely does become a more, um, you know, a challenging diet to follow if you're used to using, you know, chickpeas and hummus, which usually is made with garlic, you know, or you're using beans a lot. So, um, and that's why, again, you know, working with someone that is, you know, really well, you know, familiar with the low FODMAP diet, um, healthcare professional, it'll, it'll help you realize all the options that you do have. Cause you know, when you're used to cooking a certain way for so long, like you've got your foods, you know, we're all like that. We have our routine. Um, you know, when some of those foods are taken away, it can seem like, wow, I have nothing left, but you know, that's, that's not true. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about is gluten. And I know that a lot of people may be thinking that reducing carbohydrates or um, eliminating some of these foods means gluten-free, but that's actually not going to help, right? Because gluten is the protein in, um, you know, grains and carbs and things like that. But what we're talking about is not gluten. It's, we're talking about the fermentable carbs, which are really the sugars in in those things. So I just want to make a distinction between, do you see that a lot of gluten-free foods are low FODMAP? Um, yeah, you know, again, it depends on the product. So, you know, oats are low FODMAP, um, you know, rolled oats, um, you know, rice is low FODMAP. Um, you know, a lot of the different flours that they use in, you know, gluten-free bread and gluten-free alternatives, um, they are usually, um, lower FODMAP foods. So that helps for sure. But, you know, if you think, okay, if I just go, you know, a lot of um, women come to me and they're like, well, I'm gluten. My doctor told me to go gluten-free and, you know, I didn't really feel that much better. That's not surprising because that's only, you know, a small part of the FODMAP diet, the low FODMAP diet. And so, yeah, you know, you're right in saying that it's not just about gluten-free. You're looking at wheat, um, and other, you know, in other grains that are in that category of like fermentable carbohydrates, but, you know, quinoa, rice is okay. Rolled oats is okay. You know, potatoes are fine. So, um, yeah, a lot of the gluten-free alternatives also tend to be low FODMAP. Okay, great. That's really good to know. So I know that you practice from a holistic approach. Maybe we could talk a little bit about lifestyle things. So related to stress, um, you know, movement and how maybe things like anxiety could come into play and impact what's going on with the gut? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, we have such a strong, um, you know, gut brain connection. So our vagus nerve is the nerve that connects our brain to our gut. And so we, and kind of out of that, we have two different, um, nervous systems. So we have our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest, uh, you know, mode. And then we have our sympathetic nervous system, which is going to be more our stressed out, like fight or flight Mm -hmm. (laughs) mode. And, you know, like you said, um, a lot of those, you know, stressors, anxiety, all of those things impact, you know, what our gut's doing as well. So if we're stressed, if we're anxious, we're operating in that sympathetic note, in that sympathetic mode. And when we're in that mode, we're not primed to digest our food properly. So that's why I always tell people, you know, slow down when you're eating. You know, if you're realizing that you're more stressed, you had a stressful morning, you had some meetings come up, um, you know, taking at least some deep breaths, meditating is also really good. All these things that will shift us from that stressed, you know, fight or flight mode to okay, I'm now in rest and digest mode. I'm calm. I'm ready to digest my food properly. Um, cause you might be eating, you know, low FODMAP diet, you're doing everything perfectly. And then you sit down for lunch and you're stressed out, right? Like kids are running around and it's crazy and you're like rushed because you have to get back to work. Um, well, you're still going to have symptoms because your body wasn't ready to digest that food. And so now, you know, you've got undigested food coming into your small intestine and that's going to get fermented. So it's, yeah, again, it's very holistic when it comes to digestion and and bloat. It's not just what we're eating. Yeah. And I read somewhere that most of the serotonin in the body is made in the gut. Is that correct? Yeah. uh, I think the statistic is 95% of our serotonin is made from gut bacteria, actually. And so, you know, if we have, um, you know, gut bacteria that's out of balance, well, that's going to change our production of serotonin. That might be that you're producing too much serotonin or you're producing not enough serotonin. And there's actually an interesting study that showed that, you know, people with IBS who experience constipation have actually lower levels of serotonin. Um, And, uh, you know, individuals with diarrhea, uh, IBS, they have higher levels of serotonin. So, you know, it all comes back to the balance of our bacteria. And and if we got dysbiosis, unbalanced bacteria, that's going to lead to inflammation. And inflammation is, you know, for your PCOS listeners, like that's also going to, that's also going to impact your insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So again, it all kind of works together where if, things aren't right in the gut, that's going to, you know, wreak havoc on the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. So interesting. It's really even like our, our thoughts too, you know, I, I'm sure we were going to go into that next of just how, um, you know, our brain is connected with our gut. And, you know, if we're anxious, if we're, we have a lot of like negative self-talk, even that affects our gut and vice versa. So, um, if we've got dysbiosis in our gut, that can lead to depression and anxiety as well. So it's, you know, there's a two-way communication going on. So do you see a lot of women, once they heal, heal their gut, they get rid of the SIBO and they're following the, the, the diet properly that, you know, their whole quality of life is improved, right? Yeah. Mindset and emotional health, all of that. Absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, serendipitous that we're talking about this today because I just finished working um, with one of my PCOS uh, clients yesterday, and we were just kind of like wrapping up how things are going, and um, and it was awesome because you know we got rid of her SIBO, her bloating went down completely. She suffered from diarrhea; it's completely gone. Um, and she noted, you know, this is the first time she kind of like shared with me that her acne had cleared up and her, um, her symptoms as far as like, um, you know, PCOS, they are reduced too. So she said, usually, you know, she'd get cramping for, you know, days before her period would start. It'd be like really painful. And this time around, now that, you know, she's addressed issues in her gut, she's like, I didn't have those 
um, PMS symptoms like I had before. So it's, it's really cool to see how, you know, addressing the gut, um, can really impact, you know, mood, hormones and quality of life. Like you said. Yeah, that's amazing. So tell us a little bit about where my listeners can find you, find your stuff, look into some more info about bloat. Yeah. Um, so I'm on social media. Uh, so you can find me at ibs.nutritionist. Um, so the website and all that is coming, not here yet, but uh, I'm, you know, posting there and doing stories there and, you know, love uh, connecting with women. So yeah, feel free to reach out and send me a DM. Uh, love to yeah. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So people can click right into it. Um, Any final thoughts you want to leave us off with or what would you kind of recommend? Would you recommend someone starts tracking their symptoms if someone's not sure if they have an issue? Like where would someone go to take the first step with this? Sure. So I would for, you know, definitely recommend starting with a food diary. Um, that just helps you to see patterns, you know, whether it's hormonal issues that are causing, um, you know, digestive symptoms or if it's food, um, or if it's stress. So, you know, something that I do with my clients is I, you know, send them a kind of like a food journal template and you've got your food, the type of day that you're eating, how you feel while you're eating. So are you stressed? Are you rushed? Um, and then next to it, the column of symptoms. So, you know, did you have symptoms after this meal? And it's just a good way to start out and just come, you know, be more aware of what's going on, maybe some patterns that are uh, cropping up. Um, but yeah, start there and, you know, be uh, above all, like patient and kind with yourself. Yes. <laughs> That's a big thing, whether it's PCOS or IBS, um, you know, just giving yourself grace because it is a journey. Um, and, you know, fixing some of these issues don't happen overnight, but um, also looking for healthcare providers that are going to really listen to you, like, like you, you know, and, um, and me, hopefully, yes. you know, we're, we're like compassionately listening to our clients. And so, um, yeah, I just recommend, you know, seeking that out and, and not just settling for this, um, you know, band-aid approach where, you know, you eat less, exercise more, or take Miralax. Uh, yeah, just keep yeah. listening to your body and seeking answers. Yes, I'm absolutely on board with that. I totally agree. I don't think anyone should settle for, you know, unanswered symptoms or anyone who's brushing them off when it comes to your health. So um, that's a very important message. So thank you for saying that. All right, Rachel. So I really appreciate you being here. I know my listeners are going to get a ton of value out of it. And hopefully they'll all come over to your page to check out your stuff because you do a great job on Instagram. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Daphne. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I've found a lot of great insights, strategies, and information in what we discussed today. For more information, please visit the show notes below so you can get all the details, links, and recommendations that were discussed today. And if you like this podcast and what you've heard today, leave a review and subscribe to the show so you never miss when new episodes are out and you also help more people find this information. I'll be here again next week with a new episode. Until then, be well. Bye for now.